Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Relax, sit back. It's Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com. Go there, subscribe, tell your friends, and um, hopefully they will keep tuning in because we have a really good part one of part two here, Mark, because it's such a fantastic big topic we have here this week. But before that, you wanted to do a bit of a shout out, didn't you? I did indeed, Brendan. I did want to do a shout out to our good friends at um, Chemical Essentials. Chemical Essentials are one of our main sponsors, um, and uh, and Andrew, uh, the, um, the our contact at the business, the owner of the business, they the their main product, their main connection to uh, the veterinary industry in Australia is the the wonderful F10 cleaning and disinfection products. And we have in our practice, uh, one of the quarantine issues that we have to deal with is the regular presence of um, beak and feather disease birds. Because we're in a a practice that deals with lots of avian patients, um, we uh, have lots of um, wild lorikeets who have beak and feather disease or uh, patients that uh, um, uh, client-owned white cockatoos, sulfur-crested cockatoos who have beak and feather disease. Um, and so we are regularly using the the uh, uh, cleaning and disinfection features of uh, um, F10 uh, in the practice um, and we find them to be an excellent agent um, that uh, allows us to maintain a safe place for us to house those other patients, make sure that our uh, our quarantine room is uh, lovely and clean. And even in consult rooms, we obviously try and move those animals through the consult room and into quarantine as quickly as possible. But um, we always clean those rooms out thoroughly with F10 after the animals have been there. And we can't thank Andrew enough for distributing those products all around Australia for the use of veterinarians who in general work with any animal but also specifically for the our uh, uh, exotic and avian patients here here Mark so it's one one time when you don't mind people splashing their product around do you um, <laughs> with with chemical essentials and their f10 products so no it's um it's something we use every single day in our clinic as well, and um, I noticed that um, I noticed that the website. I've just jumped onto the website too, Mark ChemicalEssentials.com.au. He's um, Andrew's updated his site a little bit from the last time I looked at it, and um, he's got a nice picture of what looks like a bit of a coronavirus there, Mark. Um, I'm, do you think I'm, that's a coronavirus? I guarantee you that's what it is, and it's a uh, it's a pretty good. Um, uh, artistic rendition of the photographic appearance of a, what I reckon is a coronavirus. Yes. So um, I wonder where he, I was going to say stole that from. I wonder where he got that from. We'll have to chat to uh, Andrew about that. 
Well, thank you, Andrew, um, for sponsoring us. And I um, hope I didn't get you into trouble there um, from one of our listeners. And I will jump into our first news story, Mark. And um, as we were chatting off air, you found this quite fascinating. And this is from the um, Exotic um, Journal, Journal of Exotic Pet Medicine. And um, this is very relevant to both you and I and certainly a lot of our listeners as well, Mark. So the title of the paper is... Evaluation of Deslaurelin Implant on Subsequent Mammary Tumours of Rats by Grosset, uh, Vergnu Grosset et al. And um, I think what I'll do, Mark, um, I will just read the abstract basically and um, then we can have a little chat about the conclusions and the clinical relevance um, or reverence as well, I suppose. Um, Mammary fibroadenomas are one of the most common tumours of female companion rats. The objectives of this study were to determine if subcutaneous administration of a deslaurelin implant following excision of fibroadenomas can prevent or delay development of additional mammary tumours and increase survival in companion rats. So the methods were feline, uh, feline, uh, female intact clientine rats with benign mammary tumours were divided into two groups, actually th- no, three groups, no implant, which was 10 of them, placebo implant, which was 10, or the 4.7 milligram deslaurelin, which is the supralaurin implant, which was 10 also. And they were placed within two months of tumour excision. Rats were monitored for subsequent mammary tumours for 10 months following treatment. And um, expression of estrogen, progesterone, prolactin and androgen receptors stained by immunohistochemistry in primary masses of rats included in the Zeslorin treated group were evaluated with the scoring system. So results, in the control non-implanted group, four of the 10 rats developed another mammary tumour, including one anaplastic carcinoma. In the control placebo group, five of the 10 rats developed another mammary tumour, including one ductal carcinoma. And interestingly, in the Deslorin treated group, three of the 10 rats developed another mammary tumour, including one adenocarcinoma. So medium survival times after surgery did not differ significantly among the groups. No correlation was noted between receptor expression and response to treatment with deslaurelin. So their conclusions, and this is a bit we'll chat about, Mark, and clinical relevance, deslaurelin implants placed within two months of benign mammary tumours surgically surgical excision were not associated with a decreased risk of developing subsequent mammary tumours, nor with an increased survival time in female rats. And I forgot to mention the median survival time. The median time between surgery and new mass detection did not differ among groups and their median, there it is, median survival times did not differ significantly among all the groups. So further studies are needed to define useful adjunct therapy to surgery. And the reason why this is an an interesting paper and potentially an important first of many studies I'm sure they will be doing on it, um, there is the thought of using deslaurelin in non-desexed rats to, in the female rats, this study was only done, to prevent, supposedly prevent or decrease the chance of mammary tumours developing, Mark. And um, according to this study, there was no significant 
reduction, was there? And I've got a few caveats to talk about this particular study, Mark, but do you want to chat about your thoughts on it? Um, sure, sure. Um, I probably have a few caveats as well. I think um, I'm, I'm so glad that we're we talked about this off air that I think um, uh, we I really enjoy I reckon my veterinary care jumps in leaps and bounds when I listen to you talk about uh, these studies and uh, the significance they have clinical the clinical relevance of them and um, when I look at these studies uh, of course just like everyone else um, we have a look at the numbers um, and my first caveat is that Geez, there. It's a good. Uh, it's a good experiment. Um, it's a, um, a pretty decent um, design, uh, but the numbers are probably not sufficient for us to draw cast iron conclusions um, at this stage. There's obviously a tendency for there to be no particular response to the Deslorelin implants, um, but um, but I would I would yeah. More studies are needed and greater numbers to be more confident about that. Absolutely. That was one of the first thoughts I had for this. Um, and also that it was mainly, it was concentrating on rats, female rats that had um, tumour excision marks. So ones that are already developed the tumours by the look of that. Um, so I think. I think two things need to happen is, um, one, we need to make sure, well, maybe more than two things. One, we need to chat to our clients and and mention to them that there are no decent long-term studies saying or proving that using these implants in pet rats is a is a is a perfect or a great alternative to surgically desexing them, and the converse is certainly true. In that, um, I, I usually say to my clients, "Look, we do know that surgically desexing these rats at an early age, ideally before puberty um, or shortly thereafter, um, has been shown to statistically decrease the chance of them developing mammary tumours um, in the future. So I certainly mention that to the clients. Um, having said that, what do I do in my practice, Mark? And I'll be interested to see what you do. I do suggest to clients to consider using the implants in young rats because it is a, a simpler method, assuming that these long-term studies to prove that it does decrease the chances of these memory tumors developing which this study says that there's, there's no there's no relevance or, or possibility that, that might be happening with this very very small study there mark but i still offer clients the chance of um and, and the possibility of of using those implants and we do um, implant a fair few of these young rats um with the assumption that um it may be helping with it but I do straight out say to the clients, hey, um, we do have hard evidence in female rats. And I always remember the classic study that was done where they um, took a group of female rats, they desexed, surgically desexed one group of them, um, one half of them, and the other group they didn't desex surgically. They followed them for a reasonable length of time. I think it was something like one and a half years, Mark. Um, and the difference was astounding. And I think if I'm correct, the group they didn't desex surgically, 49% developed memory tumours. And the group they 
did desex 4%. So it was a massive difference there. So I always quote those sort of statistics to clients and say, look, surgically desexing them, we do know, um, does have a dramatic influence on those development of those mammary tumours in the female rats. And we think that potentially, and we do see mammary tumours in the in the males as well, um, nowhere near as common as in the females. Um, and I do strongly suggest to clients that they desex their males at an early age as well. So that's sort of my take on it, Mark. It's a really interesting, um, a really interesting study that only came out recently and I think it it points towards what you suggested that we do need to do more more longer term studies with, with greater number of, of animals. Do you do you um, recommend the implants with, with young rats for this particular um, reason, Mark? Well I think that um that you have hit the 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 there there is a feature of this study which worries me and that is that the the my the my logic is that the rats who have their mammary tissue affected by um by sex steroids in the short period of time after puberty that seems to be like the sensitive time then those rats who are not desexed and have that process, they end up getting tumours, and the ones that are desexed and don't have those uh, that uh, period of time where the mammary tissue is exposed to sex steroids, um, they don't get tumours. This study doesn't examine that process at all. It just works on the premise that once they've got a tumour, and those rats will have had that mammary mammary tissue exposed to sex steroids no matter what you do at that point, um, stopping the exposure to further sex steroids makes no difference. But that's a different clinical question as to whether you should put an implant in them when they're very young. Um, and I still do recommend to clients that if they can't see their way clear to have them surgically desexed, then it is a sensible thing to put. It's a sensible, that's probably not the right word, but there is logic to dictate that uh, placing an implant in a young one to prevent that uh, sex steroid exposure of the mammary tissue immediately post-pubertally, um, that uh, there's at least logic to suggest that's going to make a difference. But there's no studies to show that that's the case yet. Elegantly put, Mark, as usual. Um, you've summarised my five-minute um monologue there in in two minutes um so i'm feeling very humbled as usual by your your um your wordsmithness um, <laughs> that you have um, expressed there yes so no very interesting study study and we will link to that at vetgurus.com what's your news story mark mine my one is a um a national geographic story um that um brings together some uh, we had a talk about this off air and it's um and I've had a talk to a few of my staff lately about this whole concept it talks about um domesticated it's an explainer for how animals become domesticated um and so uh, it's a, I think, a really interesting topic for veterinarians to contemplate because I do think there's a whole bunch of uh, consequences to domestication and also to contemplate the animals that we keep as pets that are not domesticated. Um, those those uh, contemplations do do play a role in how we might consider their veterinary care. So, um, domestication. Uh, there, 
Domesticated animals are animals that have been selectively bred and genetically adapted over generations to live alongside humans. That's like the definition. They are genetically distinct from their wild ancestors or cousins. But as I was saying to you before, um, one of the ways that that process happens, if you want to simplify it down, is that um, whether the animals are domesticated, whatever purpose they're domesticated for, whether it's companionship or uh, to be farmed for food or to be uh, animals that work as draft animals to assist um, uh, human activity, all those animals are domesticated by a particular process, and that is selecting them for decreased flight distance. Um, that is, uh, as each generation of those animals um, uh, um, is is selected, the main thing that pe that the the humans that have acquired those animals select them for is that they don't run away, that they're more easy for humans to interact with. And a whole bunch of things happen through that selective uh, breeding process. There are a whole bunch of uh, non there's a whole bunch of tr other traits that uh, that we end up selecting for. So we select for feed conversion ratio. We select for size and strength for draft animals. We select for um, uh, particular roles in our companion animals, so whether they are protective or uh, whether they help us hunt. Um, but um, all those uh, more specific things are... Uh, secondary to the the um, passive selection of things like color and um, shape and um, uh, a whole bunch of uh, of other things um, that are the result of um, of selecting for decreased flight distance. Um, so I think it's a really useful thing to think about. And one of the things that um, that is regularly uh, not not immediately selected for, but that happens when uh, animals are domesticated is that um, there's a, a thing called neoteny, that is the retention of juvenile characteristics into adult life. Um, and that, that definitely happens uh, both passively and actively in the selection of domestic animals. And, and obviously um, uh, the the um, brachycephalic nature of our dogs is one of the things that um, that uh, um, you know the the shape of their face, the softness of their fur, the the floppiness of their ears, all those things um, make us happy, so we select for them. But they're also co-selected for when we um when we choose animals that don't run away. I think it's uh, this. I love um, the details in this article. I commend everyone to have a read of it. But I also like the idea that um, that we identify those animals that are not domesticated. Um, so things like many of our bird species um, that are kept as pets. Um, I think it's very important to understand that they have not had generations of selection that uh, uh, prepares them for interaction with humans, and that they. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're either through um, subverting the process of imprinting or, um, or other ways um, the animals become desensitized to humans in their vicinity. But it's not domestication, Brendan. Yes, it is 
quite a complex topic, isn't it? And it's a very well written article. And um, yeah, domestication versus tame, um, or domestic versus tame, is a good summary of that as well. Um, and I think one of the challenges there in the last few paragraphs, they talk about examples like domestic rabbits um, that are obviously genetically distinct from wild rabbits and people think that um, they may lead to the assumption that they, domestic rabbits can survive in the wild, you know, and, and we certainly get that a lot with, we, we see a lot of rabbits that people think that they can, you know, um, they, they don't want to keep their pet rabbit anymore, so they're just going to release it and it will be pop off into the sunset there, Mark, and it will live happily ever after um, until it's eaten by a fox or a dog <laughs> or grabbed by a cat. Um, so, yeah, um, it's a great article, and we'll certainly link to that at vetgurus.com where we have the show notes, Mark. So, yeah, excellent article. Well, let's jump into We've, as I hinted at the start, we, this will be part one of part two on chook care, Mark. What is a chook? Do you want to define what a chook is, Mark? <laughs> I love that. There's um, many Australianisms um, that, uh, you know, I love the, the characteristic of language that we have here in this country. And chook probably sums up um, better than many other examples. Chooks are backyard chickens, Brendan, and they're really seeing um, in my practice and I think all around the country a bit of a resurgence. I know, you know, my uh, grandparents um, kept chickens in the yard to provide eggs and meat, um, and um, and then probably you know people of my parents' age um, didn't you know ch keeping chickens was not something that was sort of fitted into their view of urban life, um, but I definitely over the last ten or fifteen years um, there's been a return uh, of of uh, people enjoying. Um, the benefits of having backyard chickens. And, and I reckon that um, the completely utilitarian attitude to chooks from a couple of generations ago has been supplanted by the, the, um, the enjoyment of them as almost, um, in many instances, companion animals. Um, so they, you know, we definitely have clients who have their individual birds they know, they will carry them around, they give them treats, they uh, spend time in the garden with them. They, they're members of the family, some of them, Brendan. Most definitely. And the hipsters have jumped into it, haven't they? So even in, um, and I'm sure you get the same in your region, so the inner city um, hipsters um, love having a bit of a, a chook in the backyard, Mark, and, it, and it's, um, well, it's from the, from the far, from the farm to the plate, isn't it? They love not just having them as a companion. The the fact that they're having um, eggs, fresh eggs, being produced for them um, regularly by their their backyard chickens, and uh, yeah, there's been an amazing resurgence of chickens as a pet mark so yeah part one and part two so they're certainly very common and i think most veterinary practices these days are, are having clients bring in, in their sick chook mark because they they treat them as a family member as as you just mentioned and they're willing to spend effort and time and money on trying to get them better when they become unwell. So yeah well let's jump into the basic husbandries mark in the in this first part of the chook two-parter mark um let's talk about housing what's your 
let's let's run through the things that um, we'd recommend to clients about um, keeping chickens in the backyard. What are the important factors to consider? What do they need to do? Well, the first one is they need they need to talk to their local council because there are some differences between uh, local government areas here in Australia and around the world about what you're allowed to do the number of chickens maybe or I think even in some areas um, that there are restrictions on having them at all and certainly um, uh, once you have um, roosters that uh, might be crowing that is very likely to uh, draw the attention of the neighbours and maybe subsequently the local government authority so have a talk to your local council find out their local regulations and make sure you're operating consistently with those the second thing is that um, you want to give them as much space as possible Um, so I do see a lot of you know maybe online uh, advertisements uh, for relatively small hutches um, that um, you know have a covered area um, and uh, a wire enclosed area that maybe that they have wheels they can be wheeled around the garden so the birds have um, uh, access to different parts of the yard Um, I think that the key thing about those is that if you've got two or three chickens, you probably can use one of those uh, smaller hutch type enclosures. But if you've got any more than that, um, having a larger chook run um, is uh, uh, is a good thing. Um, and having a weatherproof um, lockable chook shed um, is also a good thing. We definitely, one of the awful things that we have to face on a regular basis is um, uh, predators uh, injuring ch- uh, well-loved chickens. And um, if they don't have a nighttime roost that's secure, um, if they're not housed in something that uh, the foxes can't get into, then inevitably those uh, n- uh, nocturnal predators will find um, the vulnerable chickens and give them some uh, trouble. So a nice secure shed that the birds can uh, sleep in, um, a run maybe that has a, uh, a, a wire barrier around the end of it. Um, you can definitely, I have clients who let their chickens out of the run to give them a chance to forage around the general yard Um, but it's good that that's supervised and um, that the birds are encouraged to return to the run maybe with food as an as a treat to get them back in there or whatever Um, having that specific protected area uh, will make uh, make their life better yes our neighbors have had several chickens over the years and unfortunately most if not all of them have been taken by foxes mark and it's a pretty horrible scene isn't it when you see what happens with the foxes when they grab them and they tend to they tend to just rip them apart and eat some bits and leave other bits and um at one stage and i think i've mentioned on a previous podcast i had um I had bits of chicken um, heads um, that were thro- thrown over the. Maybe they weren't thrown by the fox. Maybe they were just trying to get back. <laughs> maybe, back your at neighbor, us. maybe your neighbours neighbors are trying um, to give you a message, Brendan. Yeah. Maybe the ongoing feud between us. We haven't spoken for many years, so um, yes, no, no, they're very good neighbours. Um, yeah, so we had bits of um, chicken that were um, in in our backyard, and yeah, they unfortunately, I think both one one time that the foxes are. Very good at digging um, underneath if the the um, 
the enclosure does not sort of continue into the into the ground um, for a, a bit of distance there, Mark, and they managed to um, dig under the, the fence there, the, the chook wire, um, as we call it in Australia, the, um, to get into the chooks. Um, and the second time, I think they unfortunately one of the one of the boys left the the door open of the of the chicken pen, um, and they got to them. So yeah, it's pretty horrific, but yeah. Um, Fence proofing or, or 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 predator proofing is certainly um, an important thing, and um, yeah, it's um, environmental enrichment. And as you mentioned, it's good to have the chickens out and about and not just confined to their to their chook cage, no matter how big that is. So um, having periods during the day, then when they have supervised access um, to outside the pen to 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 do what chickens do, Mark. Um, what else do we need to provide in that housing situation? We've got to make sure, you know, the standard sorts of things, as well as we've talked about security and shelter, you want to provide them with uh, water. Um, and uh, there are a number of uh, reservoir-based waterers that can be hung. Um, it's important to make sure that those waterers uh, can't be, con- well, there's minimal chance they can be contaminated either by the droppings of the chickens themselves or uh, uh, by other birds that might get into the chook run. Um, I think... Um, uh, um, just sticking a bowl in there and filling it with water is uh, is likely to be uh, not a useful exercise for drinking. The birds may bathe in it, um, but um, but yeah, they need a, a fresh, clean, protected um, water source, and probably a couple of them. They, you know, it's very easy for those uh, um, upturned bottle with a little uh, um, rim dish at the, the at the at the base um, to. Uh, develop a leak and run out of water and so having multiple water is just ensures the birds are never caught without water um, I think it's uh, making sure that they're protected from the design of the and location of the run so they're protected from the weather and they get adequate access to sun but on our days in Australia where we get up into the 40 degree uh, temperature we want them to have some protection from the sun as well some opportunity for shade um, so hide um, hides and shelter um, making sure that there's I like having a few branches chickens are obviously predominantly terrestrial but a few perches in the enclosure changes the dynamic and allows the birds to you know perch up and survey the area that they're in so a couple of branches that are firm um, it's always important to uh, to plan in the design stages ways that you're going to keep the run clean and um, so I think a couple of bales of hay to provide a substrate and then once a, uh, every fortnight or month that hay is raked up to remove the the uh, the droppings of the birds and the uh, uh, wasted food, and that can be chucked on the garden or in the compost heap, um, and provides an excellent uh, an excellent uh, mulch, um, and then replace it with a new couple of bales of substrate to ensure that uh, the concentration of droppings doesn't build up in their environment. Brendan, yes, and speaking of cleaning, is it? Do you recommend to clients to ever do a you know a, an actual disinfection of the whole chook run or, or the chicken chicken enclosure? And and I could imagine that it's virtually impossible to to sterilise that area. But um, and we'll talk about the common diseases in 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 part two, including parasites, etc. Um, 
yeah, what what do you do if you've got an outbreak of a condition and don't don't talk about any specific condition? <laughs> um, how, how do you how, how do you what's your recommendations? Can can you disinfect? What do you do? Um, well, you can't. The short answer is you can't. <laughs> you can't disinfect. The earth is going to do the earth thing and and uh, provide. Um, organic material which inactivates any attempt. No one, no matter how wonderful our um, our uh, F10 products are, um, and uh, the wonderful job that they do for us in cleaning and maintaining an antiseptic environment, they just don't. No antiseptic is going to work in the face of massive organic material. And if we do have a situation where we need to. Um, you know, we have an infectious problem. Um, there are a number of other steps, but we definitely have had circumstances where people have literally got the shovel out, um, got the uh, um, the dingo out, and uh, uh, the dingo being a, a small personalised earth-moving machine. Um, they then um, clear, you know, a 10-centimetre layer of um, earth from the chook run, um, and replace it with fresh earth. I don't think there's anything short of um, that sort of almost nuclear um, response. Anything else is a little bit, um, a little bit uh, ineffective. So we do definitely talk to people about trying to change the pH. You know, um, for lots of chicken websites might suggest that if you lime the area, that's going to make a difference to um, organisms, parasites, bacteria, or whatever. But I don't, I don't know that that actually has any effect at all besides selling extra bags of lime. Yes, well, you've passed there, Mark. Oh, uh, you, you spoke exactly what I was trying to get at in that we, we, we mainly concentrate on, on screening and preventative health, um, and um, which is what we're going to talk about in part two, Mark. But let's just finish this part one on... Diet. Um, you mentioned about food stations. So, what do we feed our chickens? Our backyard chickens, Mark. Do we just get all the food scraps and scraps and throw that there? Is that all? Is that all we need to feed them? What do we feed them? I I would um, say that that's inadequate. I think that it's a good thing to give them some uh, some. Uh, table scraps that the that those sorts of things and it is generally one of the pleasures of life to um, get the bucket from the kitchen that has the the uh, various table scraps in it and uh, wander down to the chook shed watch them get excited and and then cause a ruckus by tossing it in and watch the birds go ballistic but they can't survive on that alone brendan that's a little bit of a treat it's only a part of the the um the nutrition they need. I know lots of people allow them to forage extensively um, in the gardens, and uh, and certainly they will find lots of plant material, lots of insects uh, to eat. But once again, I don't think that's sufficient. I think of that as supplementary. Um, I think that in most instances, um, a good high quality commercial um, scratch mix, a mixture of grains and um, and maybe pellets uh, as a basis of the diet, then supplemented um, with, uh, with those uh, table scraps and uh, what they can forage. That provides the best diet for our backyard chickens. Yes, unfortunately, I think most regions of the world there are um, formulated diets for, for backyard chickens that um, 
are quite good. Um, what else do you sort of recommend supplementing them with as far as, well, environmental enrichment type foods or, or scratch, you know? So what, what sort of things do they get? What will they pick up off the ground is my question, Mark. <laughs> they may ingest. <laughs> I love it when we have these discussions and you're trying to lead me in a particular <laughs> direction. You're leading questions and, and oh, sometimes I feel so stupid because I've got no idea what you're heading at. I do I whether this is the answer to your question or not, I do think that um, that our backyard chalks suffer one aspect of their metabolism that um, is different to wild birds in that we've bred them uh, for generations to produce eggs and so they have a particular requirement for minerals and especially calcium and so uh, they will have a scratch around the yard and um, swallow uh, various um, stones and uh, bits of grit to help process their digestion and provide them with trace elements. But I think it's critically important um, that they have access to those additional sources of calcium. Now, most of the commercial feeds are formulated with appropriate calcium to phosphorus ratios. And, and it, there are, you will know that you can buy sort of standard uh, uh, um standard diets or uh, diets made particularly for layers um, and uh, those diets are formulated well and but I still think that um, providing them with some uh, crushed cuttlefish bone some eggshells um, those sources of calcium um, um, some uh, uh, seashells ground up seashells all those things added to their diet improve their calcium metabolism and lessen the likely that they'll have reproductive problems because they have sufficient calcium in their diet. Exactly, Mark. <laughs> exactly what I was thinking. Yes. Um, well, there we go. I think we're going to stop here and we'll cover. You'll have to wait till next week, unfortunately, listeners, um, to hear about preventative care, the common diseases, and um, some other thoughts we have about the care of the chook. And with that, we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.